Thank you. That was a beautiful prayer. Um, Hey everyone, I'm Janet. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Happy to be with you on, thank God I'm not binging on candy anymore day. Um, really happy that we're all here together. Um, I'm sure we all have horrible memories of Halloween's that where we weren't together talking about God and having fellowship and some fun with our Zoom filters. So, um, because it's Halloween, I figured the best chapter to talk about is Dr. Bob's nightmare, how he went from nightmare to beyond his wildest dreams. So if you have your big book, the chapter starts on page 171. I'll be just skipping around and saying the pages I'm on. So again, as we all know from reading the text section of the big book, we are allowed to have our own concept of God. So here's mine. God created the world in six days, took a day off to rest. And instead of spending the rest of eternity watching Netflix, he decided he's, he'd spend his time launching search and rescue programs for addicts. So here's the story of one of God's most successful search and rescue missions. The story of Dr. Bob, who, if you're new, um, he's one of the two co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, the other being Bill Wilson. So Dr. Bob's story comes right after the chapter, A Vision for You. And before we talk about how God rescued Dr. Bob, let's get a little background on him. Um, he starts out by saying, I was born in a small New England village of about 7,000 souls. And he goes on to say everything was fine. His parents were fine. The town was fine. They were moral, good. He had a good childhood. So his parents were great, but he became an addict anyway. And I think that's really important because a lot of us say, well, the reason I'm a compulsive eater is because dot, dot, dot. And then we usually blame someone and it's usually our parents. But in the story Freedom from Bondage on page 544, another cool story, the author says she didn't become an alcoholic because of what happened to her in her childhood. She said, I, I am the result of the way I reacted to what happened to me in my childhood. Um, so again, it's always on us. Are we gonna forgive? Or are we going to blame the other person? Because ultimately, the fact that I'm an addict has nothing to do with how I was raised. It has to do with the way I live my life. And Dr. Bob makes that clear when he continues on page 172. He says, I was the only child which perhaps engendered the selfishness, which played an important part in bringing on my alcoholism. So he says, selfishness is what is like kind of allows this disease to take root and sprout. And he says that his whole life seemed to be centered around doing what he wanted to do without regard for the rights, wishes, or privileges of anyone else. And he says that was a state of mind which became more and more predominant as the years pass. Well, that's interesting. We always talk about this illness as being progressive but we usually think of it in terms of food, right? Like our binge is getting worse and worse. But he's talking about even before the binging, his selfishness and self-centeredness got worse and worse. 
And that's how it is, right? Um, our book says on page 62, selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our troubles. I actually drew a little picture in my big book of a tree and I drew roots under the tree and I wrote the words selfish, self-centered by the roots. But the thing about roots is you don't see them. All we see is the fruit, right? We can be really good at hiding our selfishness and self-centeredness. Um, so on the tree, I drew three little circles, three little pieces of fruit like apples. And in one, I wrote an R for resentment. In one, I wrote F for fear. And the last one, I wrote an H for harms. That's the fruit of this illness, resentment, fear, and harms. So Dr. Bob continues giving examples of his selfishness and says, um, my parents made me go to church and basically I'll show them. He said, I decided when I was old enough, I'd never go to church um, except, so he turns his back on God, but he makes an exception, except when circumstances made it unwise to absent myself. So basically he was using church, right? He used God and church in a selfish, self-centered way, if it would serve him. So it made me think something that I should ask myself, that we should all ask ourselves, do we use our religion? Do we use God? Like, do we ignore God, except when we want to treat him like a genie in the bottle? Like, God, things aren't working out too well. So please come out of your bottle, make everything good again. And if you do, thank you. And I'll call you when I need you again. And if you don't, well, then I'll just ignore you even more. I mean, that didn't work for me, didn't work for Dr. Bob. Um, Dr. Bob continued talking about the progressive of his selfishness and his drinking through college and medical school. And he talks about his father. It says that his father, when he was in college, made a long journey in the vain endeavor to get him straightened out, but it had little effect. Dr. Bob had a dad who loved him. And we don't know, he may have died before Dr. Bob ever got sober, but he loved him and Dr. Bob felt it. He mentioned his dad twice in this story. And it made me think of times we might do something for people out of love and never see the results, right? Imagine if Dr. Bob's dad had said, I'm not gonna try and help my son again. I'm not seeing any results here none of us would be here, but he still tried. And what that teaches me is that I should love and keep on loving, even when it's difficult and even when I don't see results. So Bob becomes Dr. Bob on page 174, right? Every mother's dream, my son, the doctor. But then he says, by this time, I was beginning to pay very dearly physically and in hope of release, voluntarily incarcerated myself at least a dozen times. Here's a guy who desperately wanted to get better. He locked himself up six times. Um, and he was a doctor. People knew him. But he said, I need to be locked up because I just can't stop. So he had a desire to stop. But as we know, desire alone won't do it. On page 24, it says, at the, at a, the certain point, in the drinking of every abnormal drinker, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop is of absolutely no avail. 
Dr. Bob had a desperate desire to stop drinking, but he didn't have the power. When the obsession struck, he did what any good addict would do if he was in the hospital. He got his friends to smuggle alcohol to him, um, or he'd steal the alcohol in the building. And I mean, that was kind of like me for my first seven years in OA. I went to meetings. I had about 50 different sponsors. I did the work they told me, but I got progressively worse. I went from binging and purging maybe twice a week to throwing up six times a day and needing major surgery on my esophagus. Like Dr. Bob, I had the desire and I did a bunch of work. But I was like someone with diabetes who went to Diabetics Anonymous meetings without ever being taught how to inject insulin. I got worse. And so did Dr. Bob. Um, so just locking ourselves up doesn't do it. I know of a woman who was a compulsive eater, went to food rehab and sent herself a candy gram. If we want it, we're going to get it. Um, unless we're safe and protected by God, which is the remedy that our book offers. Um, so Dr. Bob thinks at one point, okay, prohibition's coming. That means, you know, alcohol was illegal in all 50 states. He says, I'll get drunk now because in a month when prohibition starts, it'll be illegal. And so I'll start then. But of course, there were bootleggers, people who brought alcohol illegally, and he was able to get it anyway. And it reminds me of what I was guilty of, right? Back when I was binging, the I'll start next month or tomorrow syndrome. I'll start tomorrow. Um, so what that really is, is me thinking that my cure is my pillow, that if I put my head on it for seven hours, I'm suddenly going to be cured. Um, I think they have a commercial for a miracle pillow. Um, that would be a true miracle pillow, right? If we put our head on it for seven hours and we woke up without a food obsession. But of course, it didn't work for Dr. Bob didn't work for me either. So there, but Dr. Bob continues, goes on like this drinking, passing out at home, going to work just so he could go to the hospital long enough to get enough money to drink. And he kept this up for 17 years. Can you imagine that? It's like, if you have a baby tonight, when they're senior in high school, that's how long he kept it up. And he said, I promised my wife, my friends, my kids, I would drink no more. Promises which seldom kept me sober, even through the day, though I was very sincere when I made them. But sincerity doesn't do it. Imagine someone who has cancer going to their wife, their friends, their kids and saying, I promise I'll make my cancer cells stop multiplying. It would be heartbreaking, right? Because we would know that person had zero power to make her cancer cells stop multiplying. And Dr. Bob had zero power to make himself stop drinking. And I had zero power to make myself stop binging. So he went on like this. And then page 178, he talks about a group of people he found. And he says, they attracted me because of their seeming poise, health, and happiness. So this was the Oxford group. This was a Christian spiritual group that helped people with different problems. And he was attracted by their poise, poise, a self-confidence, but not based on pride. It's based on confidence that God's got my back and God's taking care of me so I can be comfortable 
in any situation. <laughs> That's what these people had. And he said they had freedom from embarrassment. They were at ease on all occasions and appeared healthy, but most of all, they seemed happy. And that's a trait we should have in recovery that people can say to us. I mean, people shouldn't look at us and say, oh my gosh, I know she's in recovery, but like, she looks so sad. Like all this work she's doing to help others and stay abstinent, it's dragging her down. Like she doesn't even have time to wash her hair. No, we are supposed to exude happiness, joy, and freedom. That is a promise. That is our birthright if we work this program. So anyway, Dr. Bob, like he's no dummy, right? He looks at himself. He sees he's ill at ease. His health was at the breaking point and he's thoroughly miserable. And he said, I sensed they had something I didn't have from which I might profit. And I learned it was something of a spiritual nature, which didn't appeal to me very much. So he was honest, right? He said, okay, they're happy, healthy, poised. And it's a result of some spiritual work. And I don't like it, but he said, eh, I thought it would, I thought it could do no harm. So I gave the matter time and study for two and a half years, but still got drunk every night. And isn't that like us before we recover? I mean, I remember reading program literature while I was binging. It was like having cancer and I'm reading a manual on chemotherapy, but not injecting the chemo. And that was Dr. Bob. And that was me reading, but not getting better. And in a lovely testimony to his wife, page 178, he says, how my wife kept her faith and courage during all those years, I'll never know. But she did. If she had not, I know I would have been dead a long time ago. His wife had courage and faith. And the word courage always makes me think of like the Wizard of Oz and the Cowardly Lion. What did the lion do? He continued on to Oz, even though he was afraid. And he had friends who propped him up when things got difficult. So in recovery, when we need courage, when we need to keep going, even when it's scary and hard, hopefully we find some friends to like prop us up along that yellow brick road, right? That's what we need. And Dr. Bob also says his wife's faith kept him alive. How come? Like, what is the correlation between faith and him getting help because faith actually does something in the spiritual world. Faith is the currency there. Um, it leads us to communicate with God. And maybe it was her faith, her whispered prayer that led God to say, okay, my next search and rescue mission will be for her husband. Or maybe it was because at that point, Dr. Bob said at one of the Oxford group meetings held at the house of Henrietta Cyberling, remember that name, it'll come up later. Um, she was on God's search and rescue team for Bob. Anyway, at her house, Dr. Bob said, guys, I have this confession to make. I'm an alcoholic. And I can just picture them all chuckling behind their hands a little bit like, okay, Bob, tell us something we don't already know. They all knew he was an alcoholic. And Henrietta Cyberling said, we'll pray for you. And there they were praying for him. So their faith, coupled with Dr. Bob's wife's faith, and what was the result? Well, let's just flip back a couple of pages and we'll see what the result of all that prayer and faith really was. Back in the chapter of Vision for You on page 155, we meet our other co-founder, Bill Wilson. 
Bill Wilson didn't live anywhere near Dr. Bob, but he just happened to be in his area on a business trip. He was there newly sober. His business deal had gone down the tubes. He wasn't in good health. He had no money and he was physically weak. And he said, I better do something. So he went to a payphone. I know all you kids like 20 and under won't know what they were, but there were these phones that were in public places and you would put in a dime or a quarter and you would like dial, you know, dial, like put your finger in this thing and for numbers. And then you would get like five minutes or so before the operator would say, please deposit another dime to continue your call. So he went to a payphone. And there was a list of six churches. And he said to himself, I need to somehow find like a priest, minister, rabbi, someone who's going to give me a drunk to try to help because that's what I need to do. And he called all six. So that's either like six dimes or six quarters. He's standing there at this payphone, right? And not until the very last one. So that tells us never give up. Did he get a pastor who said, I'll get you in touch with this woman who has a spiritual group at her house. Maybe she can help. So Bill Wilson calls, guess who? Henrietta. And when she answers the phone, he says, my name is Bill. I'm in town for business. I'm newly sober. Do you know any drunk that I can help? I was crying. And she simply said, we've been expecting you. We've been expecting you. She knew that her prayers were going to work. So it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I can't believe God answered, you know, our prayers. It's like, yeah, we prayed for help for Bob. We didn't know how it would come, but we knew the help would come. Because God isn't limited by how we think things will happen. She might have thought he was going to get sober in the Oxford group, but she said, we've been expecting you. So what happened next? She invites Bill over and she calls Dr. Bob's wife and says, can you bring him over here tomorrow to talk to this guy? And Dr. Bob says, fine, but I'm not going for more than 15 minutes. Um, actually did a little research on that first meeting between Bill and Dr. Bob in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age. And Bill really prepped for that first meeting. He talked to Dr. Silkworth, who was the author of the chapter, The Doctor's Opinion, saying he was trying to help people and they weren't getting better. Um, so they were talking strategy. And Dr. Bob, Dr. Silkworth gave him a lot of tips about don't go in there preaching, go in there identifying yourself as a fellow addict, put yourself on the same page because no one likes to feel like they're a project. Um, and, but Dr. Silkworth said the first thing to do to help someone is to help them to see that they are powerless. And maybe they, that's why for me, going to a therapist never worked, going the religious route never helped me stop binging. Because what Dr. Silkworth told him is basically, you need to take a first step. You need to first admit you are powerless and your life is a total train wreck, ego deflation at great depth. So, that's what has to be done. So Bill went in there and instead of getting all spiritual and telling him how great the Oxford group was, he just shared stories about how he used to drink and he, how he would say, I'm just going to have one more 
but he'd keep drinking until he pretty much lost everything. And so he's telling Bob this, and I'm sure Dr. Bob was saying things like, yeah, I drink like that too. Yeah, I did that too. So he went up in there saying he was only going to stay 15 minutes and he he ended up staying more than six hours. So that's another thing about Bill. He was willing to put in the time and Dr. Bob was willing to do the work, but not quite willing enough. On page 155, it says, a spiritual experience, he conceded, was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. Why, he argued, should he foolishly admit his problem to his clients? He would do anything, he said, but that. And as we'll see, his but that would get him into trouble. Um, So Bill stayed with Bob for three weeks and kept working with him. Bob stopped drinking and then went, you know, for about three weeks. And then he went to a medical conference and he got drunk again. And I find it fascinating what happens next. Um, Dr. Bob gets drunk at his conference, drunk on the way home and wakes up drunk at a friend's house, not knowing how he got there. The friend called his wife and his wife called Bill. And what did Bill say? Did he say, Bob, I spent three weeks of my life working with you so you would get better. How dare you do this with me to me? Or I told you you shouldn't go to that conference with so little time under your belt. I'm on the next train back to New York. Goodbye and good luck. Or, you know, go listen for another voice. Maybe you need to hear a different voice. He didn't do any of that. Here's what Dr. Bob said that Bill did. Bill came and got me home and to bed. He took him home and put him to bed. I mean, think about that, putting a drunk alcoholic to bed. Bob probably smelled. Bill probably took his shoes off his dirty feet and covered him with a blanket. And Bill stayed with him. Interesting line here on page 180. It says he stayed with him. And the next day he gave him one glass of beer. And I always wondered, why did he give him one glass of beer? The reason is that Dr. Bob was scheduled to do a surgery that only he could do. Um, This is a couple days after he got back from this trip gone bad. And he was shaking so badly that Bill gave him one glass of beer to steady his hand so he could perform the surgery. So by the way, this is not to say that, you know, if we go out, if someone goes out, then we give them one Milky Way the next day. No, this was a very specific situation um, for a very specific reason. So he could do the surgery, which by the way, he did. And Dr. Bob never drank again because right after that surgery, he went around the town and he told all the people he didn't want to tell, I'm an alcoholic. He did that. So his, I'll do anything but that change to, I'll do anything, period. And we know, right, that that's critical. Page 58 tells us, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then, and I say then and only then, are you ready to take certain steps? So Bob was willing and he never drank again. And he spends the last couple of pages in his story talking about his recovery and he gives us many pearls of wisdom. He says, okay, you may be asking, what did that man, Bill, 
do or say that was different from what others had said or done. Because, you know, we can assume like he read the Bible, he read lots of spiritual literature, he's been around spiritual people, he was a doctor. First, he says, Bill gave him correct information. And I would couple that with love. Bob wasn't a project to Bill, he loved him. There's love, right? If you're gonna take a drunk man home, take his shoes off, put him to bed and keep working with him. So love and good information are the two things we need to offer someone. If we have love without correct information, right? Imagine I have diabetes and my doctor loves me and tells me to take penicillin. I'm not gonna get better. Or let's say I have a sponsor who has great information but doesn't have love and is like really scary. It's not impossible, but it's gonna make it harder for me to be honest. Love and correct information. And then Dr. Bob says, of far more importance was the fact he was the first human with whom I had ever talked who knew what he was talking about in regard to alcoholism from actual experience. In other words, he talked my language. And that goes along with what it says in the forward to the third edition. Recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. But why? Why don't they say recovery begins when I take like step one? And I think it's because when one addict talks to another, something happens. There's more than a conveying of information. There's a transmission right? Page 164 talks about that. Bill Wilson was transmitting something to Dr. Bob. I looked up the definition of transmission. It says that something like heat, light, sound, electricity, or other energy passes through a medium, kind of like telephones transmitting sound waves. And I think that in God's search and rescue mission for Dr. Bob, God used Bill Wilson to transmit God's own love and concern for Bob. And if we go to the page 164, the end of the chapter of Vision for You, it talks about this transmission. It says you cannot transmit something you haven't got. So see to it that your relationship with God is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. See to it that your relationship with God is right. That's the condition. What does that mean? Well, remember when Bill Wilson first got sober and was in the hospital, he said, the thought came to me that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They in turn could help others. But before Bill could be fit for this work, he had to see to it that his own relationship with God was right. How did he do it? How do we all do it? Page 164 tells us, abandon yourself to God as you understand him. That means basically give God a blank check with our lives. Admit your faults to him. Okay, that's a little hard. And to your fellows. Well, that's harder, but necessary. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. Bill did that. He made those calls, six calls. He didn't just make two and say, I give up. You know, I made two calls. God clearly doesn't want me to talk to someone. Then he went over to the strange woman, Henrietta's house. And even before he went, he called Dr. Silkworth to brainstorm on the best ways to help this guy he's never met. 
And then he spends over six hours with him that day. And he stays in that town for three weeks to help him. And then when he finally thinks he's helped someone, Dr. Bob breaks his heart by coming home drunk. But he kept at it with Dr. Bob and thank God, right? Because if he hadn't, none of us would be here today. And every now and then someone comes along and says something bad about Bill Wilson, like, oh, he did this or that thing that wasn't right. And what I say is, first of all, I don't know. And second, it's none of my business. But most important, look what Bill did for Dr. Bob, for me, for you, for us. I think that's what we should think of when we think of Bill Wilson. Back to Dr. Bob on page 180, he says, it's the most wonderful blessing to be relieved of the terrible curse with which I was afflicted. He says, I've regained my health, my self-respect, and my home life is ideal. And then he says he spends a great deal of time passing this on to others who want and need it badly and says he does it for four reasons. A sense of duty. It's a pleasure. Because in doing so, he's paying his debt to the person who carried the message to him. And finally, as an insurance policy against drinking again. First, it's a duty. I mean, the truth is, sometimes it is. Um, sometimes I don't want to pick up the phone. Um, I don't want to take the time. God hasn't 100% finished with me yet. And I'm still selfish. So thank God there's people in my life who I'm responsible to help because that's the way God works on rewiring my heart and get rid of, getting rid of the selfishness. Um, sometimes it's out of duty, but more and more as time passes, it's for the second reason, it's a pleasure. It's often a pleasure. The more we grow spiritually, the more what we have to do and what we want to do become the same. The more we grow spiritually, the more what we have to do and what we want to do become the same. His third reason, because in doing so, I'm paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me. I mean, that's gratitude in action. And I have to tell you, when I hear my sponsees sponsoring someone or speaking at a meeting about how God has removed their food obsession, like it just makes my heart light up with joy. And last, he says, every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. It is our best insurance policy. First line of chapter seven says, nothing will so much insure immunity against alcoholism, or for us compulsive eating, as intensive work with other alcoholics or compulsive eaters, intensive work. So Dr. Bob continues by saying he used to get upset when he saw his friends drink, but realized he couldn't. So he schooled himself to believe that though he once had the same privilege, he abused it so frightfully it was withdrawn. So we can do that. We can like say to ourselves, self, I used to have the privilege to be able to do whatever, whatever, but I abuse that privilege and now I don't. I mean, just like if we Getting too many car accidents or privilege to have a driver's license gets revoked. And then Dr. Bob starts talking some tough love here. Um, he says, if you think you're an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic, or have any other form of intellectual pride, which keeps you from accepting what's in this book, I feel sorry for you. It's interesting, right, that he calls atheism, agnosticism, and skepticism forms of intellectual pride. 
because that's really me thinking I can do it on my own. I don't need anyone. I don't need God. And I love how he doesn't say, if you're an, an atheist, an agnostic or a skeptic, he says, if you think you are, meaning you may think you are, but you're really not. And I guess it would be like me thinking I have no lungs inside of myself, right? This is America, free country. I can think and say whatever I want. So I could go around saying I'm a lung agnostic. I'm a lung atheist. I don't believe I have lungs. But of course, what I think about my lack of lungs doesn't really matter. Um, and our book tells us on page 55, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So between these two lungs that God gave me, God planted the fundamental idea of himself. And the big book says this fundamental idea of God inside of us may be obscured, but it's there. And, you know, we could talk about this for hours, right? There are podcasts on the chapter, We Agnostics and on Finding God. But for now, like, just suffice it to say, Dr. Bob basically says, you may think you're an agnostic, but you're not. And it's almost like an invitation, like don't have so much pride that you block yourself off from the sunlight of the spirit. And Dr. Bob continues on with his tough love. He says, if you think you're strong enough to do it your way, that's your affair. Like, we're not going to try to convince you that you need help, that you really need this. Then he says, but if you really want to quit for good and for all, not just to look good at your high school reunion so that that boy who dumped you 20 years ago feels bad. If you want to quit for good and all and feel you need help, he says, we know we have an answer for you. And then here's his conditional promise. It never fails, right? Guaranteed, works 100% of the time. But here's the condition we have to meet. It never fails if you go about it with one half the zeal you've been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink. I put a lot of zeal into getting my binge foods. I stole food. I stole money for food. I walked the streets of New York City at two in the morning with my rent money. Today, I have to put that kind of zeal into my recovery. Um, and if we do this work, we are promised, promised that it will never fail. And on the last line of the chapter, he tells us why. Because our heavenly father will never let us down. God will never let us down. Um, I believe we are all here because God has la launched a search and rescue mission for every single one of us. And he's given us a manual, right? We now have a manual and people to help us so that we can recover and then join him on his search and rescue missions for others, the way that Bill joined and rescued Bob. And what a glorious sense of purpose for all of us. What a glorious God to give it to us. And it's just like, I just feel so blessed and grateful to be sharing this and trudging this road with you guys. And with that, I pass. Thanks.